Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Cloudy skies, rain in the area. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll get an update regarding Gwinnett County Public Schools to see how students and educators are doing with online learning and in-class instruction. Uh, Overall, I I think it is a best case scenario for all families, given that we had such extreme views on this issue. A conversation with Gwinnett County Public Schools Associate Superintendent for School Improvement and Operations, Dr. Steve Flint, joins me. But first this, President Donald Trump will be in Atlanta today. He's expected to deliver remarks on black economic empowerment called the Platinum Plan. Last year, the president introduced Black Voices for Trump from Atlanta in hopes of garnering support from black voters. Meanwhile, Democratic Party of Georgia chairwoman Nakima Williams and black Georgia Democrats responded to President Trump's Atlanta visit earlier today in a press conference. We saw the numbers from the June primary where um, 53% of the votes that were cast in our primary in June were Democratic ballots. So we are seeing the same numbers that they're seeing, and he's here because George is a must-win for him to get back in the White House. President Trump's visit to Atlanta will be brief, according to official White House plans. The president will fly out just after 4 p.m. And this Saturday, the president is expected to announce the Supreme Court justice nominee to fill the seat formerly held by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. WABE will have live coverage of President Trump's announcement tomorrow, starting at 5 p.m. In other news, the Red Cross of Georgia is encouraging folks to donate blood because those blood donations might go towards helping COVID-19 patients. A statement from the Red Cross of Georgia cites plasma from whole blood donations that test positive for COVID-19 antibodies may now actually help current coronavirus patients in need of plasma transfusions. And meanwhile, as of today, the Georgia Department of Public Health reports there are 311,046 COVID-19 confirmed cases right here in the state since March. There are 27,903 hospitalizations, and of those, 5,120 are ICU admissions. 6,832 Georgians have reportedly died due to the coronavirus. And we should note that according to the Department of Public Health, Newly confirmed cases of COVID-19 are declining after stalling for about a week. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, we know the fall school year has started. And either your students are in class or they're at home or a combination of both. And I know a lot of parents have had to become very creative in creating their own little workspace for students. By the way, send me your pictures. I want to see what your kids are working with. Now, you may recall a few months ago, back in May to be exact, I spoke with Dr. Steve Flint. 
He's the Gwinnett County Public Schools Associate Superintendent for School Improvement and Operations. And our discussion centered around how Gwinnett, the largest school district in Georgia, was preparing to navigate these uncharted waters as we all deal with COVID-19. We've had a pandemic plan in place for the last 10 or 11 years. Actually, um, it was uh, developed in an effort uh, with H1N1. And uh, as we've uh, really worked with that over the last couple of years and now actually putting it into place, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, don't work. There's a lot of things that do work. Uh, and so we're, we're continually looking at that and trying to make adjustments that's best for everybody involved. So let's find out what's been working, what hasn't been working, and what are the challenges of educating during this pandemic. So let's welcome back to the program, Dr. Flint. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. It's good to talk to you, and I appreciate you bringing this to to all your listeners. Um, There's a a lot of students in Gwinnett, and Mm -hmm. we're committed to doing the best that we can for their education. So I'm looking forward to to the discussion and update. All right, well, let's start with the update. Uh, Since our last conversation, that was in May, it's now September. How's it going? What's the overall assessment through your lens? Well, as I think we were just listening to the last update, and no doubt we have had to make some adjustments, but overall our our plan to return to learning uh, whether it be digital or in person um, has worked very well Um, and i'll say um, it's not just the plan that did that it was really the people um, that made that happen from the students who it's designed to help um, to the parents who are at home or even bringing their students back and forth to school or getting them on the bus um, or our teachers and administrators they're the ones that are actually facilitating it and Um, We've been getting a lot of feedback, and so the areas that have gone extremely well, I know they're appreciative of having that in the plan, Uh, but you know, the the areas that needed adjustment, I do think there's an appreciation that we're willing to make some adjustment when when that needs to happen. Uh, But overall, I'd say the status of our return to learning uh, is very strong. Um, We're we're focusing on our core business of teaching and learning, Um, and given the situation, uh, we're in a pandemic, global pandemic, um, I think we're, we're doing about as, as well as can be expected. Well, let's begin with the positive. What has been working? You said you've been getting feedback. What are those strong areas that you are hearing from the educators? I think uh, the first thing is uh, the uh, choice that parents were able to make here. Um, there was a lot of discussion around that. As you know, um, people, this is a very personal um, issue with families. Um, we all have um, different uh, things that we're dealing with and living with. Um, and so we, we heard very strong feelings um, that some parents and students really did want to return in person. And in fact, they, they weren't doing well digitally um, as we finished out the last school year. And we heard others that were just extremely nervous about coming back to the building. And so I think overall um, providing the option um, is, is very positive. So we have about 60% of our students that are um, in digital right now and 40% that are in person. And I, I flipped those numbers because remember the last time we talked, uh, we actually had uh, 60% that wanted to come back in mm-hmm. person. And so over those last couple of months, we saw the numbers and about 20% changed their mind. And, um, and you know, we staggered this uh, return to learning as well. And so we did start all digital on August 12th. Um, and then we brought in the earliest uh, grade levels by level. And so that 
worked extremely well. We're continuing to get a lot of positive feedback on that, where on August 26th, we brought back in kindergarten and first grade, uh, sixth grade and ninth grade, as well as all of our self-contained um, special education students. Uh, and then we, every week, rolled more students in until the final September 9th date, where we had all of the students, all 40% that chose in person, were actually back in our schools. And so overall that has worked extremely well. Um, we have been continuing that. Um, some students who may have become contacts or um, gotten sick are able to roll out and to do a digital learning without actually missing uh, much school, unless obviously they're sick or unable to participate in the activities. So uh, overall, I, I think it is a best case scenario for all families, given that we had such extreme views on this issue. And you also had some educators who had some concerns. Uh, I, before we move on, I just, if you can, do you, are you all aware if you've had any uh, confirmed cases that might have made you all shift some classes, individual classrooms to online? And what can you share in terms of that? Oh, sure. Um, uh, we definitely do. We did from the day uh, we started bringing students back in as mm -hmm. far as an ability to deal with a student that either has been sick, um, starts to feel ill, and and then the majority of the numbers here are around students who were what we would kind of deem a close contact to those. Um, and uh, we have those numbers posted and we update them daily by school and by whether it's a positive case, a suspected case, or a contact to a case. And, um, and that's open to our public, our, our parents, any of our students, anybody who wants to look at that, mm -hmm. you can look at it by day. We also on that list have a rolling active case count where that's the number of people who are out due to each of those areas. Very, very small numbers of uh, positive cases or suspected cases um, and very few of those actually uh, were transmitted or what we could find transmitted uh, during the school day or the activities. Most of those were brought in from a community spread and then we had to address the context of those cases. Um, and I'll just say one more uh, piece on this. We, uh, we have a health response team that has been trained at every school uh, based on uh, the health department guidance and regulations and their training materials. Um, they also work with a district nurse uh, in identifying and investigating all of these cases. Uh, so we have refined that process, but I think uh, since the inception, that has been a very strong part of our plan. Uh, we exclude students uh, from the building, but keep them learning. And so um, uh, you can look at those numbers. Um, we do continue to see uh, cases come into the school every day, but they're very minor and they're usually from community spread. You look at the map that the Georgia Department of Public Health provides at their daily status report, which is online, and you look at the spike in confirmed cases. And Gwinnett, you all, last time we spoke, you all were not second, but now you are uh, second in the state in terms of confirmed cases and second behind Fulton in terms of deaths. Dr. Flint, you all will use these numbers in making any decision moving forward as you look to 2021 as well, correct? Yeah, that's a, a good point. Um, I just can't say enough about our, our local uh, health department, our uh, Gwinnett Newton Rockdale, um, their director, Dr. Arona, um, actually works with us very closely. Uh, we look at the numbers um, on a regular basis. 
Uh, we also break that down. Um, we really look at the five to 17 uh, year old case rate. Uh, we've seen a, a great decline since we came back to school in the 14 day case rate mm -hmm. and the case rate per 100,000. Um, she helped us to develop our overall plan this year in returning to learning. And um, I, I got the pleasure to actually visit a number of schools with her so we could see how this was working in the schools. Um, and, I, you know, I think we both learned a lot from each other, but also seeing what uh, was happening in, as far as the teachers implementing the plan out in the school and, and the administrators making um, that happen for their school. So um, I, I can't say enough about the health department and she was extremely pleased. Um, I know we were able to do a couple of interviews after that and mm -hmm. just really appreciate uh, her input and continue to work with them. And the good news is since July, when you when the county itself had spiked, I mean, it was you were just under Fulton. The good news is that you all have been trending down. So that is good news in terms of the county. So as the county goes, I guess so goes the school district. Uh, let's talk about the students now. Are you confident? Are, what percentage of students who are online that they all have a device laptop chromebook dr Flint, this has been an issue for so many districts not just here in georgia but throughout the nation because there's been a tremendous demand for these devices which I, makes the manufacturers very happy but there was a backlog so what can you tell us about the students in Gwinnett county that have laptops or chromebooks or the learning devices that they, that they need Right. Our process, um, obviously, in the fall when we went to a fully digital and, and not even expecting that, I don't think anybody expected it. Um, we, we, at that time, probably had the largest difficulty making sure we got devices out to the right people. Uh, we did it slowly because we wanted to make sure at that time that the, the people who didn't have any access were able to get online. However, since that time, um, we've increased the number of our devices and um, we've also added hotspots. Um, as far as I know, I do know this, we have a very good process for working with families who need um, devices. Uh, we're constantly monitoring how students are logging on, what devices they're using, um, their, their ability to interact um, in our live sessions. Um, and so we'll reach out when we know there's an issue. Uh, what I would say is that if there is any student or family who is having difficulty with that, we need you to contact the school so we'll know about that. It's, um, we are looking at um, all of the different resources we have, but unless somebody, uh, if we don't see that in our resources, unless somebody tells us they either don't have a device or a way to connect, uh, we might find it difficult to find them. And so overall, um, whereas I think we have um, a very good process and we're seeing most of our students connecting, uh, we do need to find the last ones that maybe aren't as engaged as others and letting us know in what they need. And, and that's what I would suggest now. Is there an estimate of 20%, 30% that may not be logging oh, on? Oh, no. Uh, most of our students, uh, almost all of the students have been logging on and have been participating. We may see lower participation from some students. Uh, and I think that's what the process right now is to is to provide uh, a meeting with the parents. Uh, sometimes we would have what we would call a student support team meeting um, to reach out and find out what that issue might be. 
um, we, we're seeing most of our students logging in. It, it would not be anywhere close to those percentages. It'd be very, very minute. Um, I think what we're seeing is um, it's difficult, we know for all of us, but some students in particular, to interact um, and to be as motivated in a digital fashion. Mm -hmm. And so we need to continue to work on ways where uh, not only are we providing for their social, emotional health and learning, but we're also um, reaching out and finding out what we can do to make sure they connect. Are you able to pop into any of the virtual classrooms and see for yourself? That's, sure, that's what uh, we do. And our, our division works directly with schools. Um, we um, are involved in walkthroughs, whether we're in person um, or, or, or walkthrough digitally, where we'll be able to go in and, and work with classes. And it's, it's not a gotcha issue with us. It's actually a continuous improvement model that we use. And, um, and our teachers, for the most part, are very comfortable with that. They're, they're uh, used to seeing frequent people in and out of their classrooms. Um, and uh, as far as administrators or other support staff, coaches, specialists. Um, so we have a very good process to do that. Um, I think the work and the very difficult work is what are the things that we, we need to work on to, mm -hmm. to make sure that our in-person students are getting the same thing that our digital students are and vice versa. When you look at this pandemic and, and who knows, nobody knows, uh, obviously, and you look at as you plan for 2021 hopefully after the holidays if the kids can come back besides the science which you said you all are following but how much weight will be given to the educators the community the parents the students in terms of making that decision yeah i think all of them have input i think all of us um the schools are owned by the people and um whether you have students in school obviously um, those are the ones we're focused on um, mostly. Um, however, um, all of our stakeholders in the community that, that are helping to fund our schools, our teachers that are actually there doing the work every day, um, you know, we're actively planning for next semester. Um, right now, it doesn't look like there's going to be a full return uh, to in-person. Mm -hmm. And so what we want to get through today is we have the nine-week period coming up um, in a few weeks. We want to do any adjustments that need to be made uh, by students who may need to change their placement and then look for a process next semester after that time uh, so students can choose one or the other and we can stick with that for the semester until something changes that we know maybe we can uh, uh, come back in more of an in-person format but i think the design is to go ahead and see what we can do to uh, make that selection for the semester and get students where they can be most productive and mm -hmm. most and achieve highest level possible. Dr. Flint, let me ask you this because I, I'm aware that the overall student enrollment for the district is down this year. Fewer pre-K students, which could be understandable. Uh, but do you think the pandemic, had, there's any correlation with the pandemic and a lower enrollment overall for the district? Yeah, certainly there is. I um, obviously in the state of Georgia, um, kindergarten is not required. And so kindergarten is where we're seeing the largest number uh, who have not returned. Um, that's at a, about 11%, but that's uh, about 1,365 students. So mm -hmm. there's a large number that never enrolled there. Uh, you mentioned pre-K, we had close to 50% there, but obviously, Pre-K um, is a very small number, so that only accounts for about 
600 um, of our students there. Um, the rest of them uh, for pretty much are in the elementary grade levels. Um, we see um, a, a higher number uh, all the way up until our 12th grade year. And, and obviously when you get into the middle school and the high school, you have credit bearing classes and you have to achieve a number of credits before you, you can graduate. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, a little bit of an understanding there that maybe there would be uh, you know, a, an ability for parents to keep their younger children home uh, and feel a little more comfortable uh, with helping them, one with the content, but also that they wouldn't be missing a credit bearing class that may affect their graduation. And so I think it's understandable looking at the numbers overall, um, we're only about 3,800 students off of where our projection was. And that is a lot, but uh, when you when you take into consideration the situation we're in, it's probably not as much as I would have anticipated. Finally, before I let you go, uh, there is some congratulations in order. Do you all have a Gwinnett educator that was named the Georgia History Teacher of the Year? So congratulations to Very that. Very proud of her. Very proud of yeah, her. It was Carrie Slayton, yeah, uh, at Central Gwinnett. Also, let's talk a little bit about sports. You and I are big sports fans. How has all the protocols regarding COVID-19 and your sports teams and your athletes and coaches and support staff, how's everybody doing? You know, our um, our athletes and our athletic trainers and our coaches and our athletic directors kind of set the stage for us to really understand more about this pandemic. Uh, in the summertime, uh, we had a return um, to conditioning and then a return to actual uh, competition. Um, they went over and above uh, with that. They, they continue to do that. We're doing all ticketless. Uh, we're limiting the number of uh, patrons that are able to come in to see the um, uh, games and uh, we're giving priority to families and and that uh, doesn't happen just uh, without a lot of people putting a lot of effort into it mm -hmm. and so my hat's off to all of our, our coaches and people sports staff who've been involved with it um, we're having a successful season uh, the, the students are are being able to compete they're competing at high levels um, we're enjoying it and we're keeping them as safe as possible so we're looking forward to a great season um, I know it's different um, is different at all the levels, and we're watching from from pro to uh, the college level, uh, and and no doubt um, our high school kids are are enjoying that at the same time. So looking forward to a strong season. Thanks for asking about that. No, you've got some wonderful athletes, as all the districts do, and you all have some kids that are already committed to uh, some colleges. So that's a that's a great way to end this conversation. Dr. Steve Flint, Gwinnett County Public Schools Associate Superintendent for School Improvement and Operations with an update on how the district has been responding to the pandemic and since the students have come back for this fall school year. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to all your students and educators. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The Paycheck Protection Loans Program, or PPP, 
Yes, it did help some small businesses stay afloat for about six months during this pandemic. According to the Small Business Association, they approved 5.2 million loans, totaling $659 billion, with the B, dollars. However, there was criticism of the program. First of all, questions about who actually received the loans in terms of equity. And this, a U.S. House subcommittee report, revealed a lack of oversight from the federal government, which may have led to, quote, hold on to this fraud, waste, and abuse. The program also ended on August 8th, and the pandemic and many stay-at-home restrictions were continuing, obviously. What does this mean now going forward, and what can small business owners do to stay afloat? Well, joining me now to talk about all this is Peter Roberts, Professor of Organization and Management at Emory University's Guazetta Business School. Professor Roberts, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, too. The PPP, the Paycheck Protection Loan, sound like a great way to help small businesses during the pandemic. Let's begin here with your reflection. What should have happened in terms of the plan? A lot of people say the way they rolled out the plan was problematic to begin with. Let me get your assessment. Yeah, I think maybe even one step backwards about sort of the definition of sort of what it means to be small and why you want to support small. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we have a lot of these conversations kind of teetering on the top end of, you know, is Ruth Chris small? Uh, Bigger issue is there's an awful lot of very, very small businesses that contribute to neighborhood vitality, that contribute to sort of the economic well-being of neighborhoods that were in a weird way too small to be considered small and therefore completely missed by the program. Well, and we understand, too, that the Los Angeles Lakers and I think Shake Shack and, and not picking on them, but they were the ones that were singled out because folks said exactly what you said. They're not small business. The Los Angeles Lakers are not a small business operation. Yeah. So let's Give our listeners a little bit of positive. So what did work with this program? Um, uh, so the nice thing is, if you sort of think about that cascade down from the not really small all the way down a little, it did find a way to get to sort of the base of the pyramid where sort of individually, sort of the ones and twos and three people that are employed, you know, collectively, you got to kind of con- continue that livelihood. So it got there. Um, so I think that's a positive. The work that the Small Business Association does at the small end of the distribution is critical work. Yeah, to make sure that we sort of grow into the next generation. And the goal was to ensure that these small business owners and their businesses could weather the storm, so to speak, and not mm-hmm. have to leave their communities or not have to shut. We had so many conversations with folks about how they were trying to make it during this time. But that was the goal. The goal was let's help these small businesses that are really vital to the community so they can stay exactly. afloat. That was the goal, right? Yeah, that's right. If you think about that idea, it's sort of a, a stimulus to keep these very, very important small businesses going. And it's also a stimulus to make sure the people that work for them. So the idea that if you keep people on payroll, right, then the shock, mm-hmm. the local shocks associated with these small businesses going under is, is not quite as strong. So um, so that idea of sort of, you know, keeping that sort of often invisible layer of vibrancy. And the reason we get so mad at the Lakers story is that most of us have the sort of underlying belief that says the Lakers should have been able to sort of take care of themselves and keep people on payroll by themselves. Mm-hmm. But that's a lot, lot different than your local coffee shop, your local diner, your local you know, law firm, accounting firm, et cetera. So that's sort of that twin notion of kind of keeping businesses going so that people can keep livelihoods going. And we should note before we continue that the Los Angeles Lakers, Shake Shack <laughs> and Ruth Chris, I do believe they all either sent it back or declined right, right. to accept it. Now, yeah. I want to play a clip for you from a conversation I had back in May of this year with Yasmin Ferrari. She's a senior policy counsel for the Center for Responsible Lending. Basically, businesses that are more resourced 
were advantaged by the structure of the program in lots of ways. So larger payrolls, having existing relationships with financial institutions and commercial lenders, all of these are huge advantages. So there are a number of ways in which the program is structurally disadvantaged for the smallest of small businesses. She says something very interesting. They have existing relationships with lenders mm-hmm. and with banks. And when we talk about small businesses, Professor Roberts, often that relationship is maybe not as strong as what she talked about. That was an issue as well. Yeah. And that's, that's what got lost. People want to look for when they look at things that sort of end up being biased against certain people. You want to kind of think, oh, it's the decision maker at the desk. And it's not the inability to get to the desk. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of these things, when you really, really want to go to the small end of small and make sure that these sort of these local pockets of vibrancy are supported, you have to kind of understand kind of where they are and their ability. Uh, I got to get myself to a lender. The lender's got to have a relationship with the SBA. And when that sort of time-based process kind of kicks in, I just don't get there well enough or fast enough. And, and that's, I mean, when you start thinking about what do you want to do about this moving forward, I think it's extremely important you sort of tackle that issue is that we don't really know how to find and how to support these folks that are not yet large enough or not yet connected enough. So the next time something like this happens, you know, we're in trouble again. You know, often we talk about, because I've had these conversations, we talk about the underbank and unbanked in terms of households. Often we don't hear about the unbank or underbank as it relates to small businesses. That's a reality. Absolutely. I think in a lot of cases, when we look at neighborhoods, we have this idea that we're, I mean, it's not like we know enough, but we know a lot more about the residential side of things as opposed to the commercial side of things. So a lot of our work, you know, relates to race, you know, majority black neighborhoods versus majority white neighborhoods, right? And there's an awful lot when people talk about things like residential equity and what happens on the home side, but there's just a massive deficit in these very small but established businesses, majority black neighborhoods. And the fact that we don't know how to go from zero to 30 means that we're going to have a permanent problem moving forward. Well, that leads me to this. There was a report from the Atlanta Business Chronicle that detailed this in the Atlanta area. Mm -hmm. Look, there are more than 18,000 businesses in Georgia that were approved for the PPP loans, which was about per, I think, business was right around $150,000 or more. Mm -hmm. But it also revealed that most of that funding was concentrated in, quote, wealthier zip codes. Mm -hmm. What do you make of that? Well, it goes back to the larger and established, right? Is that, you know, these places, if you sort of think about how a program like this works and how an SBA works, it goes through a network of lenders, it it works well with folks that are established enough. Um, You know, Metro Atlanta, you know, you don't have to look very closely to sort of see that there is a black, white slash rich, poor gap. And, you know, the, the business as normal in certain of these areas, you can mobilize quickly, get through your relationship partners, get the support you need if you live in one kind of zip code. But if we've never bothered to sort of think about the legitimacy and credibility and importance, right, of this cadre of businesses in poorer, and in Atlanta's case, majority black neighborhoods, then what you have is you have folks that basically are just too far away from the starting point of programs. Um, so we just don't know how to reach them. And it's, it's, it's it accumulates and it's terrible, it's terrible. Do you think through your lens, and as someone who obviously is an expert and analyst in this area, would have been better to disperse this money on the state level and then the state could have dispersed it or somehow worked with those banks? For example, here in the Atlanta area, we know about the history and the importance of Citizens Trust Bank. 
they're a small bank in themselves and they have a unique set of issues that maybe another big financial giant won't have to deal with. So would it might have been easier to work directly with those banks who are in the communities yeah. that work with these minority owned small businesses? Yeah, and I think I would even take that one step further and maybe step outside your comfort zone and say uh, there are other organizations that can help mediate and get access. And can you do it in different kinds of ways? I mean, the, the point of the PPP was to sort of keep livelihood and keep employment going. And if we have a, a different kind of economics in different neighborhoods, and especially now with the benefit of time and realizing how much money we wasted at the top end of the distribution, we have had three, four months to sit down and say, how do we find the folks that weren't supported in the places that weren't supported? Mm -hmm. And how do we make sure that we get some sort of small business stimulus in those areas? So like the micro business associations, the start me's, the village capital funds, the AWBIs, mm -hmm. these are the kind of things in Atlanta that sort of says, can we convene y'all and say, what can we do to make sure that this kind of stimulus that has the intent of keeping people working and keeping people earning money, how do we get it to the folks that you work with? And so I think that kind of creativity, I'm not optimistic, mm -hmm. but I think that's the sort of thing you need to do at the next layer. You don't want to obviously say, well, what happens next time? Hopefully we won't enter another mm -hmm. pandemic, but what other lessons learned here? And I'm going to take this in a different angle for small business owners who may be underbank or unbanked at this time? Mm -hmm. um, I think, I mean, I've been thinking a fair bit about this and there's the, what can they do? And um, when you, when you identify the problem is with the systems and the structures, there has to be like a, what can we do so that they can do? Mm -hmm. um, you know, the one thing that, that I found troubling is we were looking at data from the SBA lending from the 2010 to 17. So looked past previous meltdown and say, and the ratio of kind of what the SBA did in the majority black, majority white neighborhoods, the ratios were exactly the same, right, over the 2010 to 17 period as they were during PPP. And that sort of suggests to you that there's, it's not just a now you know, problem with the quick fist, it's mm -hmm. the problem with the structure. And, and so I think what we need to do is we need to find a version of the SBA. We, we gathered a bunch of micro business support organizations that our challenge is we work with things that are too small to be small. Right. So the kind of organizations that we're talking about that work in neighborhoods up against someone who employs 500 people, they're just, you know, the Australians just possess chalk and cheese, right? That, those are two very, very different things. So we need to find a way to put resources, right, kind of into neighborhoods so that historically marginalized folks have a chance to grab them and build businesses. Uh, and I'm actually quite confident that says if you can get them from that chasm from being informal to growing to that point when you make sense to the SBA, most models, right, that that look at like when you come to the front door, mm -hmm. there's no, there's not as much overt discrimination mm -hmm. in this process as there is systemic and structural discrimination. So I think we, we've got to kind of go a we and they. Well, you and I both know when it comes to fixing a system that has yeah. systemic issues, as they say, that ain't easy. No, a, and when you add the fact that they're small, right, it's so very, very hard to get people with this discipline to say like a thousand small things, mm -hmm. right, have a huge impact. When you focus on the one small thing, why do we care so much? One employee, two employees, yeah, we're talking about a big problem, you know, here. So having that discipline to go and say, like, it's almost like neighborhoods need drip irrigation, right? You need to kind of go mm -hmm. in and say, we have to kind of find a way to get some of these things up and growing so collectively they contribute. Um, but uh, yeah, there's not a lot of discipline to go long-term working with small things. Well, looking at the state of our economy right now and the fiscal health of the economy right now, which is really an unknown moving into the last quarter of this year, how optimistic are you that there will be a rebound for the small business and what needs to happen, though? 
Yeah. Moving into so 2021. I, the, I, I have an, an infinite faith in the entrepreneur. Like I really do. The Start Me program that we run, that the amount of, of kind of like energy that is bubbling up below the surface, and that's sort of a persistent positive. I think that the challenge, I think some of the stuff moving forward is I don't believe that enough people are kind of looking at the sort of the double, triple tsunami. I mean, NPR had data this morning, mm -hmm. you know, come out when they basically talk about sort of black and brown folks, you know, being disproportionately hit. Well, well we know where they live, mm -hmm. right? And now you're sort of doubly disproportionate. And now in the places that you live where you need that local stimulus, because then, you know, individuals are going to be carrying fewer resources in. We see right now, I mean, the, the construct of, of being shut out of something like $14 billion, mm -hmm. right, with majority black zip codes, I mean, that's, that's a huge amount of stimulus that, that wasn't there. So I, I, I am not, I am, this is the right word, can you be hopeful but not optimistic? Yes, you can. Right? <laughs> I'm, I'm hopeful that the severity of the problem, if we can have more conversations like this, that will say that the only good thing about looking at garish numbers, like going, holy smokes, like you didn't get $3 billion is it sort of opens up the policy sphere that says, how do I get the $3 billion into those neighborhoods? Mm -hmm. And I think if we have that sort of thing where people start getting creative in terms of what sort of organizational networks and how do you disperse and how do you make these funds available? Um, I'm hoping that the fact that, you know, as we're talking about large, large sums of money, that there might be some sort of creative policy that says we have got to work right on these 460 zip codes because there's a lot of people live there, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people kind of looking for looking for opportunities and looking for something positive. Um, entrepreneurs can deliver it, but you know they need some form of stimulus. And in terms of specific industries, Professor Roberts, what industries concern you the most moving forward, and will they be able to rebound? Yeah, you know, I, I kind of look at, and again, I am biased to the lens of our Start Me program that we're running in three different neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you know the you know, Brian talks about sort of the makers and the bakers. So I think there's there's food services. There's enough disruption, right, in food services with restaurants. He said there are going to be opportunities for people to not only feed folks but also make a living feeding folks. You know, can we be creative enough to allow, for example, like home-based restaurants and home-based? Um, so I'm, I'm I'm optimistic there. That's also one of those things that's sort of available and accessible to the micro entrepreneur. Um, but if we look at all sort of these, these things that have been displaced, mm -hmm. yeah, right now, and, uh, you know, having a you know, chat with folks over in the mayor's office. So when you think about sort of our black and brown residents, like what jobs were they dislocated from? And then what's sort of the, the most facile path sort of through entrepreneurship? So definitely on the services side. Um, and I also think if you sort of think about what else goes on in these neighborhoods, you know, folks that are sort of genuinely interested in tailoring services to local mm -hmm. populations. Um, and so I think it leans services, it leans things, again, that people in the world of economic development tend not to look at. You know, I don't really care about you from a development perspective unless mm -hmm. I see you as a shake shack, you know, right. down the road where like multi-unit across country, but there's nothing wrong with having kind of a couple of barbecue shops, mm -hmm. um, community cafe up the road. There should be 10 of those, you know, in my neighborhood mm -hmm. here. Um, and, and I think those are the kind of things where the entrepreneur can definitely meet you halfway. Says, I got the skills, I have the aptitude, I have the you know, the risk orientation, but what I need is I need someone who understands where I am, right, and where I want to go. And finally, has this pandemic forced you all with your Start Me program to change or alter or add yeah. or implement any new initiatives or resources yeah. moving forward? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely, because it's that movement of saying, like, you, you, you certainly want to be sort of safe and careful with the people that you look to support. So the idea that, you know, there's that when you have an accelerator program to get together every Wednesday night and kind of working shoulder to shoulder, 
So that has to kind of switch to virtual. Um, so I think some of that's going, you mentioned before, like these importance of relationships. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a, a, a firm believer that it's sort of being shut out of those things. How do we make sure that the mentors that are so critical uh, manage to establish these sort of relationships that they would have got face to face when it's you know, through a Zoom link? Um, so the team's working really, really hard uh, to make sure that the entrepreneurs kind of benefit from the collective energy and the mentors are there forming relationships because I mean, that has, you know, the, it's, it's like this weird notion of, you know, it's like the, you know, the, the, the three heads of the apocalypse mm -hmm. right now, there's just so much worrying and so much hunkering down. And I think it's isolation that's harmed a lot of these folks, you know, kind of moving forward and COVID's not going to help. Mm. Um, so that's for sure. Not courage. Peter Roberts is a professor of organization and management at Emory University's Guazetta Business School. Professor Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time. Good conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. A recent poll from the Kaiser Family Foundation found 53% of respondents said the coronavirus crisis has taken a toll on their mental health. And you might recall on a recent edition of this program, we focused on wellness within the pandemic. We talked about methods for addressing anxiety during this time. And our conversations concluded an interior designer who talked about plants and how they were therapeutic, a registered yoga teacher and a psychotherapist. One of the reasons why plants are part of my self-care, I guess, routine is because it's something that's outside of myself or something that I'm taking care of that I can watch grow. And I feel like that was a very confidence boosting for me. My client base has definitely increased. And one of the common things that they're saying is their inability to focus. And I believe that the inability of focus comes because right now our mind and our body is in survival mode. I think yoga is even more valuable in this era of COVID-19 because it gives us a way to move our bodies, to breathe in a healthy way, and to quiet our minds. Well, now we're going to continue the conversation with Emma Cephala. She's the science director of Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, and also the co-director of wellness at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. And she recently co-authored a study that finds a specific breathing technique could be helpful for those experiencing increased anxiety. And perhaps we all could really enjoy that. Emma, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. And as a note of disclosure for our listeners, as always, we recommend consulting your own physician before you make any health or lifestyle changes. And don't tell folks that Rose Scott told me to do this and then I'm in trouble. We'll just full disclosure. <laughs> so, Dr. Cephala, before we dive into your latest research, let me ask you this. You're a lecturer, author and research scientist who has spent most of your career studying the, quote, science of happiness. Is that correct? Yes, I've really been interested in what brings about greater well-being, meaning health um, to uh, human beings. So that has been my focus. Mm -hmm. As an expert in this field, if you don't mind me asking, how are you managing your own, I guess, happiness and mental health right now? Well, one of the reasons that I've researched um, breathing practice in particular is that I have found them very effective for myself. I was in New York City um, during 9-11 and experienced a lot of anxiety um, every morning at 8.30 after that day um, in New York. And, and I tried a lot of things. I loved the yoga and all that, but I just found um, that what was most effective for 
anxiety uh, was, uh, was breathing, which is why I have uh, run a number of research studies looking at this effect. Well, you heard in the clip that we played in one of the former guests that we had on, who was a psychotherapist, who talked about one of the reasons that could be for the anxiety during this pandemic is because we are, in a sense, in a survival mode. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, I mean, really, we are in a fight or flight mode, right? So fight or flight is that sympathetic nervous activation, which helps us survive. And it was designed to help save our lives. For example, if you're in great danger, your fight or flight is supposed to kick in to help you run run quicker, uh, you know, out of the way of that semi truck or lion or whatever, right? Um, and during these kinds of uncertain times when there's a lot of fear in the air, a lot of fear through all of our, our news media, et cetera, um, it can really trigger that fight or flight response. And to be honest, even before the pandemic, people were relying on their fight or flight response, right? Mm-hmm. People think that they kind of need to be stressed in order to get things done. So we really, at this point, are in sort of extreme uh, extreme period of stress, I would say, more so than usual. But with that mode, there's usually a destination, right? For example, if we got to rush across the street to avoid being hit, we reach the other side, that's our destination. Well, with mm-hmm. this pandemic, we don't know the destination because it's... Correct. So is that a reason, again, why the anxiety is probably so high for so many people in this nation? Absolutely. So when things are uncontrolled, unpredictable, that is when we experience anxiety. But the truth is that life brings unpredictable situations all the time, right? And so the question is, how can I be resilient no matter what comes at me? Because life, and I think we've all experienced this, brings unpredictable and challenging situations to us on a regular basis. So how can we train our nervous system so we can be the most resilient and therefore effective in whatever we're doing Uh, as possible. And so that's where you want to trigger the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the opposite of the fight or flight, the rest and digest Mm -hmm. system. And one of the fastest ways to do that is by using breathing. How often when you have a lecture or you're talking about this and someone says, look, doctor, I have a hard time focusing. I'm not that type of person. I don't have that personality type. Do you hear that a lot? Absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the populations I first worked with in our study um, was veterans with trauma returning from Afghanistan and Iraq, and they don't have time for nonsense. They really don't believe in most of this stuff. Um, but we did a breathing protocol called Sky Breath Meditation with them mm-hmm. uh, just for seven days. And after seven days, their anxiety was normalized. Um, in fact, many of them did not qualify as having post-traumatic stress anymore. And the results were maintained one month and one year later, suggesting permanent improvement. So there is a lot to be said for just giving so this breathing, a shot, mm-hmm. the sky breath meditation is a protocol that involves a number of different breathing exercises that seem to work really well together in terms of benefiting stress and anxiety. And we just saw the same thing at a study we ran at Yale, looking at different well-being interventions, including mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and the sky breath meditation. And again, the breathing protocol was the most effective. So how would you describe it to a listener here who's hearing this for the first mm-hmm. time saying, okay, are you just telling me that I just need to change maybe a way that I'm breathing or or implement this breathing pattern and I'm going to feel less stress and less anxiety? 
So you can do like a short exercise in a moment of tension and you will feel better. But I will also recommend learning a protocol like sky breath meditation to kind of build that resilience over time. But what I can share with you now is one of those short exercises. We know that our heart rate increases when we breathe in and it slows down when we breathe out. So take five minutes to breathe out slower and longer than you breathe in. For example, breathing in for a count of four, breathing out for a count of eight. Do that for five minutes. Guaranteed you will feel different after. Keep your eyes closed. Yeah, and then again, that is gonna help you in the moment. Um, But of course, uh, I really recommend doing a breathing protocol kind of every day because just like going to the gym, you're training your nervous system for resilience. So the sky breath meditation we found to be very effective. And it's just a 20 minute practice that you can do daily, um, just like you might exercise or whatever. um, And to train yourself to be resilient to stress. Now, for those of us who have ventured into yoga as of late, where breathing is so important, and we have our normal pattern of breathing, and then in yoga, there's the pattern of breathing where you are to breathe through your nose and push out your stomach, and then when you exhale, you're bringing your stomach in, sort of like into your rib cage. Now, for some folks, that that's challenging already. So is this sky meditation is... Does it involve changing our regular breathing pattern that we're used to? Absolutely, it does. And the most amazing thing is that we had wounded warriors in our um, study. We had people who couldn't walk. The truth is, if you are alive, you can breathe. So anyone can do it. That's just the most basic movement of life that we do every day. We breathe in and we breathe out. It was the first act we did when we came into the planet. It's the last one we'll do when we leave. People may not realize, but so your breath is connected to your nervous system. And our nervous system is at the core of our anxiety. Am I getting that right or am I way you're off getting, base? Oh, you're so right, Rose. I mean, this is exactly Ooh. exactly correct. <laughs> and, and you can actually slow your heart rate and your blood pressure in just minutes with that short exercise I described earlier. We also know that emotions are linked to breath. So you'll, you've probably noticed that when you feel different emotions, your breathing changes. Have you noticed that? Yes. Absolutely. I feel like I'm right in the office with you. (laughs) (laughs) Who can benefit from this most? Adults, uh, youth, small children. I mean, you know, I just did a segment with some students last week who talked about they would like to see more reporting on the mental health of college students right now during the pandemic. Uh, But can this benefit all demographics? Yes, it can benefit all demographics. Um, That's what the research studies show. But really, I mean, when we're talking about the college mental health, it has been on a steep decline for the last 10 years and has reached a peak during the pandemic. 18 to 25 year olds are most at risk for mental health issues. Um, Suicide is the second leading cause of death for 18 to 25 year olds. It's the seventh leading for um, other age groups, uh, older age groups. So really, we really need to pay attention to them. And there's a wonderful organization called Sky Campus Happiness that mm-hmm. offers um, the Sky Breath Meditation for college students and, and to universities everywhere. And at Stanford University, it's actually offered, uh, we offer it through the curriculum there, which is great. Do you recommend this for households, for families to all do together? Or is it better left individually? I mean, I think it's wonderful if people can do it together. The more people in, the, in a family are building resilience and mental health and well-being, um, the, the better the family dynamic. There are kids' programs, too. There's a kids' program called Sky, Sky Schools. Um, they do a kids' program, kids' version, and then there's the adult version, which is offered through a nonprofit called Art of Living. 
As we wrap up, Dr. Cephala, when we talk about wellness during this pandemic and we talk about ways to, I guess, take inventory of our mental health and our emotional health, what do you want people to remember in terms of taking that first step, the importance of it? Because you said you have the studies to back up that it that it's, it's helpful, that this breathing meditation is helpful. So what do you want to say to one who says, well, Tell me the benefits of this and why I should do it. If you want to feel better in the fastest, most efficient way possible, and I think we all just want things that are fast and efficient right now, um, breathing is going to be um, the fastest, most efficient way for you to gain resilience and, and mental health and well-being. And the sky breath meditation we have found to be extremely effective. So taking care of yourself that way um, is going to really be beneficial. And I have to say, the look, having looked at the um, signs of happiness for the last decade, there are two things that predict well-being. One is compassion for yourself. So doing this kind of practice to help you build resilience. And two is compassion for others. So being of service in the world. Sometimes stress and anxiety can make us very focused on ourselves. And yet when we actually reach out and do something for others who need our help, you know, whether it's helping a neighbor or calling it a lonely aunt or something, you know, whatever it is you can do every day, um, that is the, the other secret. So it benefits you and society. So. Uh, good words to end this conversation on, definitely. Emma Cephala, the Science Director of Stanford University Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, as well as the Co-Director of Wellness at the Yale Center for Emotional Intelligence. Thank you so much for taking the time. Good suggestions there. Hopefully it'll help our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. My pleasure. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Kanavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.